0: Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Malouf, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well.
1: This is a cool topic. Um, we're going to be talking about self-talk. And I don't know. As a therapist, I love this topic. I think I have to uh, as a therapist, but also as a Dharma teacher, I also love it Um Just because we don't talk about it too much, and I think it's just really important, and the Buddha certainly thought uh, it was hugely important. In fact, there are a few passages in the Pali Suttas where the Buddha says one of his biggest breakthroughs as a meditator was when he began to see his own self-talk and began to see how his thoughts really could be divided up into uh, types of thoughts, types of questions, and types of thinking that led to his suffering, and then types of thoughts and thinking that led to freedom. And so even with the Buddha, he acknowledged, you know, several thousand years ago that it was just a really big insight when we can really see how we talk to ourselves moment to moment and how this inner voice or inner voices help us or hurt us, depending. So yeah, let's, um, let's talk about this tonight. And this brings us to the second of three fabrications. Last week, we did bodily fabrication. That Dharma talk is up if you were not there for that, and we did uh, record a separate meditation on how to do body fabrication meditation, so that's up on the podcast as well for those who weren't here. So uh, just one quick uh, review just to get us on track for those who haven't been around. Um, Basically what we're talking about is the ways that the heart and mind co-create our moment-to-moment experience. So how the qualities of heart and how the qualities of mind react to what is present to shape how we think, how we feel, and how we react and show up, as I like to say, uh, in the world. So today we're gonna to be talking about how we talk to ourselves. And so the Buddha calls this uh, concept verbal fabrication. And I know the word fabrication is such a strange word. Um, I like to use it because that is the the most literal translation of the term, uh, but we don't really use that term very often. So if you don't like the term fabrication, just think creation, or participation. Um, Fabrication is when we co-create our experience moment to moment. So all we're doing is reacting, engaging, or fabricating our experience by the way we think, uh, by the questions we ask and and how we speak to ourselves inside and how we speak to others outside. So fabrication just means engagement. It's the type of creation we're doing moment to moment with the self. Um, It's not as complicated or strange as it sounds. The thing I like about verbal fabrication is that as self-aware creatures, we don't just react on instinct, right? We spend time questioning and analyzing, and I don't know about you, but I second-guess myself all the time, right? We imagine a future, we look at our past, and we kind of break it down, and we have this ability to not only be self-aware, but to constantly be thinking and rehashing what's going on in our lives. And it's it's kind of a unique thing for humans to be self-aware in this way. And we all do it. It's this common human experience of having an inner voice. And essentially we're in a constant dialogue with ourselves, right? Not only are we in constant dialogue with everybody else, but we also are in constant dialogue with ourselves. And from a Buddhist perspective, um, as we know, the Buddha didn't really look at the self as a thing. The self is more of a process. And in fact, there isn't, in a sense, a self, but self Many selves arising moment to moment. So when we're angry, we have a certain self that thinks and feels a particular way. When we're joyful and optimistic, a different self begins to arise. So moment to moment... Depending on how we react, we're creating a sense of identity. And in the part, we do this through this type of self-talk. So how we talk to ourselves changes moment to moment, depending on the circumstance, depending on what self is arising. You know, for those of you who have kids, you've got your mom or dad hat that you put on and there's a certain self that arises when you're in parent mode, right? When you're with your kids, there's a certain self. And then when you're with your friends, it's a different self. It's not the same parenting self. When you're at work, right, we have a certain self that we bring to work that thinks in a particular way and behaves in a particular way. And each one of those identities has a certain mood associated with it, certain behavior patterns. And we participate in fabricating those selves moment to moment. We participate and we create them as forms of habit. From a Dharma perspective, this habit of creating selves through the way we talk, through this inner dialogue, is intrinsic to our personhood, right? It's intrinsic to our nature. We do this constantly. We're constantly self-reflecting by self-talk. Now, to some degree, you might say that this can be good and bad. So on the good, or we could say, let's not use good and bad. Let's say skillful and unskillful, right? Let's stick with Dharma dharma language. Uh, So we have skillful and unskillful ways that we talk to ourselves. So if you think about it, human beings are able to think about their past and reflect on their past. And that allows us to learn from it. It allows us to not make the same mistakes um, twice or only make them twice and not make them a third time, depending on how many times of reflection. Um, So we can look into our future, right? We can uh, imagine a life that's going to be lived, and we can then show up in a way that tries to create that life. We have this ability to dream, right? To aspire, to envision a particular future. And we talk to ourselves about that future, And that ability to imagine and think about and contemplate what we want to be in the next moment or in the next year is a type of self-talk. It's a type of self-creation. And our ability to do that is wonderful. You know, even the Dharma itself in part exists because we can imagine or envision a life free from suffering. We can imagine a life where we bring kindness and joy and compassion to every moment and to every person we engage with. And there's a certain self-talk with that. We think about the path, we think about our practice, we think about what we're doing, we imagine, we reflect, and we investigate, all the while creating a sense of I, a sense of I, me, mine, moment to moment. On the more unskillful side of things, We can learn from our past but we can get trapped in it right we can overly think about our past we can get trapped in regret we can get trapped in uh what we call rumination where we just keep thinking about our past keep thinking about our past and we struggle to move forward we can think about our future in a positive way where we can envision something and live into it but then we can also in the present moment anxiously anticipate what might happen in the future that could do harm things that worry us and so we can get ourselves in these deep states of anxious apprehension and fear so much so that it even like paralyzes us right from moving forward into the future that we want or we're so afraid that we might fail that we don't envision a future uh, that we want or maybe we don't think we're worthy enough for a particular future because we're thinking in a particular way that we're not good enough or we're not worthy or we're simply not capable so we, we realize that this self-talk is going on constantly, and sometimes it can help us create a future to live into that's wonderful. Other times it traps us in the past or leaves us feeling fearful. This is why being awake and aware to our verbal fabrications is so important. And challenging, of course. I'm not, let me emphasize that, and challenging. Another aspect of this verbal self-creation is that the way we talk to ourselves directly impacts our mood. And another aspect of this is that most of the self-talk that's going on is going on very at a very low volume. Sometimes it gets really you know clear and we're sort of arguing with ourselves or getting down on ourselves. But oftentimes when we're moving through the world, this self-talk is not really in awareness. It's in the background, running <laughs> running its mouth, so to speak, and we're not totally aware of it. So in the background, we have this ongoing dialogue with ourselves, and it's not until we can get into deeper states of meditation or when we invoke mindfulness that we can catch the mind in the act of self-reflecting, right? Really self-reflecting. Look at these real unconscious views, these unconscious habituated thought streams that trap us in angst and dukkha so the self-talk creates emotion not only there's other things that create the emotion but it is co-fabricating our experience of mood and one of the easiest ways to reflect on this is um, with strong emotions right such as anger or depression or anxiety and All human beings have these emotions from time to time. We've all been depressed on occasion. We've all been worried and anxious on occasion. Now, both of those extremes can be pretty intense and be clinical, so to speak, and we could get really trapped in them. But either way, we kind of know what those strong emotions are. And what we often forget is that a depressed heart and a depressed mind or a self that arises uh, with the quality of depression often has certain type of thinking. A heart or self that arises moment to moment that is worrying often has a certain type of self-talk and over time, we can see the patterns in ourself of these type of thought trains. And with mindfulness, we can learn to unfabricate them. We can learn to let go of them and replace them with more positive thinking. And not positive thinking, like looking on the bright side, but more skillful thinking, more truthful and authentic thinking. So I'm going to give you some examples of these. These are really obvious, but we don't often think of them until after the fact. So I wanted to go through some of these. uh, Well, in the West, we call them cognitive distortions in therapy. Uh, In the Dharma, we just call them verbal fabrications. But I just wanted to remind you of a few of these to be aware of because they're really common and they're happening so quickly and they're happening so automatic that we don't necessarily catch them. At least not right away until they've already brought us into a state of unpleasantness. So the first one I like to remind ourselves of is just negative brain bias. And I've talked about this before, just reminding ourselves that the mind tends to look at reality and scan the horizon of our moment to see if anything can harm us, right? We're looking for the negative in the world to protect ourselves. And the mind is oriented with this bias of protection, So moment to moment, the mind is thinking, is that person safe? Is this situation secure? Am I okay? Are they okay? We're looking for things that might harm us. And if we're not really attentive to this, the mind can spend a little too much time worrying and getting wrapped up in negative emotions as it tries to protect itself. So that's one thing to remember is the mind is actually oriented with this negative type of scope for its own protection, but oftentimes we don't need to be as worried. We don't need to be as concerned for what is coming into the present moment, but we worry about it anyway. So just reminding ourselves that the natural inclination of the mind is to look for negativity. Because it does that, it often has a hard time acknowledging the positive. This is why we practice gratitude. Part of the reason in the Dharma that the Buddha encourages us to intentionally cultivate thoughts of goodwill and thoughts of gratitude is to counteract the fact that underneath the mind tends to not think about that stuff. We will more likely look at a situation and look at the negative parts. We will look at the parts that we failed at. Or messed up on or didn't do good enough and we will completely forget about all the goodness that we have in our hearts and all the good things we did in our day and all the successful things that we did because the mind is oriented towards the negative so remembering that can help us and practicing gratitude as well can be very helpful now along with this backdrop of looking to protect ourselves There's a few common things that we do, and of course, whenever I talk about this, I always like to to remind ourselves that it's much easier to imagine other people doing these things than it is for us to imagine ourselves doing these things. So, we all have watched ourselves or others do the following. One is called magnification, otherwise known as blowing things out of proportion. The mind loves to magnify stuff right? The mind loves to blow things out of proportion. Have you ever been in a situation where you're blowing something out of proportion? Like, you know, you're overreacting and you're trying not to overreact, but the mind just keeps, it won't stop. It's just blown it out of proportion and that's just what's going to cause the mood. So these are the kind of things that are caused by certain thought trains, right? Certain verbal fabrications. The mind loves to exaggerate and we get into habits where each of us have a particular trigger And we tend to overcompensate by blowing something way out of proportion. And we all know, like we've all had a friend, you know, maybe not us, but like we've all had a friend who's blown something out of proportion and we try to get them to kind of settle down and like be chill and we we can't calm them down and they're not going to be chill. So you know how the heart-mind works with this. It's like once it's on that thought train of, oh my God, this is going to be catastrophic. I can't believe this is happening. It's out of control. We have a hard time calming down. We need to catch these habits early before they blow up. So magnification or blowing things out of proportion is a big one. The opposite is minimization. So this is when the heart and mind tries to minimize stuff. Now this can work in two different ways. Sometimes minimization is where We downplay the importance of something. Something is very important, but we don't want to deal with it. So we say it's not that important and we kind of blow it off. And so we minimize it. When we see this in a more harmful manner is when we minimize somebody else, right? Someone says something and we minimize the importance of what they're saying and minimize them as well in the process. So these minimizations is when Our mind is thinking, oh, that's not a big deal. I don't need to worry about that. Or you're overreacting. And so we have to be careful with this minimization factor of the heart and mind because the mind loves to do this. It loves to do it for a protective reason where maybe something is really painful and part of you understands you need to have to deal with it, but you're not ready. So you minimize it. You're like, well, that's not that big of a deal. I'll just deal with it later. So that, that's healthy, right? But then there's times that we're just minimizing something for another reason, where we're not paying attention to something that needs to be heard or needs to be honored. And these days where that's really being called out, of course, um, is in our social interactions where we're minimizing people. We're not hearing each other and we're not giving people the time of day. And the mind loves to do this. It loves to minimize. It loves to think that something is not important. So over-exaggeration, blowing things up, and and minimizing these two extremes. A couple other ones that are really important to keep track of in yourself and look for triggers. One is over-generalization. <laughs> the mind loves to generalize, right? The mind loves to take a single circumstance or a single instance and apply it to everything. So that's what generalization means. We take a broad conclusion from a single event or single circumstance. So one way of saying it is a bad thing happens and then we generalize it and we think that that bad bad thing is gonna happen a bunch of other times and it ends up harming us because we become overly anxious or overly afraid of doing things or engaging in a particular way. We also do this a lot with um, other people. We're with a person and the person does a particular action and instead of looking at that action as a part of the person, we overly generalize and make it the whole of the person, right? We judge them and stereotype them based on a particular personality trait or a particular one time interaction, or um, we take a single trait and we let it overshadow all of the other traits. So the mind does, it's important to remember that the mind does this naturally. It's when it overdoes it or does it in a way that can be harmful that we really have to pay attention. The mind generalizes as a shortcut, so it doesn't constantly have to learn the same lesson again. But generalizations, of course, can do harm, especially when they lead to stereotyping. So we have generalizations. And then one other one I wanted to mention is uh, personalization. (laughs) This one's great. Personalization is when we overly take responsibility for something that we don't really have control over. So. This is a tough one because oftentimes we're doing it for, well, I'll, I'll go back I'll go back, I'll say this. So personalization is like taking responsibility or being overly responsible for somebody else's situation, overly responsible for a like, well, a good one is climate change, right? We're all, in a sense, responsible for climate change. But none of us individually, should be sitting around thinking we are responsible for saving the world. It's too much of a burden for one human being to to take on, right? So we have to be careful not to overly personalize responsibility for a reality where there's a bunch of people co-creating the experience. Another way we do this um, more subtly is in our intimate relationships, where we tend to take on responsibility for other people's behaviors or other people's problems to the degree that we end up feeling resentful or bitter or, uh, unheard, for example. So we have to be careful. The mind loves to attach responsibility onto reality. It gives us a sense of control, even at times where we're not really in control of the circumstance. I I work with a lot of activists being a social worker and, uh, I've noticed this a lot in the activist community, people becoming very depressed, very anxious because of over-personalizing and feeling so responsible for the world and just feeling completely paralyzed and exhausted because they, they see themselves as, in a sense, being solely responsible for the changes that need to happen. And so it can be very devastating to the heart and mind to overly personalize things that are happening in our life. So one last one that's pretty famous, and I thought I'd mention this. This is not really a Dharma one, but it's definitely implicit in the Dharma. But this one is from Western psychology. Um, and this just has to do with depression. And I mentioned this because I know as human beings, we all suffer depression sometimes. Some sadness, um, feeling kind of hopeless, feeling like, God, you know, the existential angst of being an adult. <laughs> being a human, but also being an adult. Um, And this is called uh, the Cognitive Triad of Depression. This is a famous Aaron Beck uh, understanding of some thought patterns that I think are just good to remember for all of us, no matter what kind of emotions we have or whether we have a history of depression or not. I think it's just really healthy to remember uh, these three themes. So in a lot of studies in cognitive behavioral therapy, there are three types of thoughts or thought patterns that always accompany depressed mood. And so they're really simple. Negative view of oneself. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. Right. Negative view of oneself. Negative view of the world. The world is unsafe. The world is never going to get better. The world is a thing to be feared. uh, I'm never going to be able to. Uh, live in the world in a sense like the world is never going to be what I want it to be so negative view of self negative view of the world and negative view of the future meaning an absence of optimism right a sense that the future is fatalistic um, that the future is inevitably going to be dark and and whatever destructive apocalyptic these days that's easy to do (laughs) It's easy to think that these days. <laughs> I know some of you are like, well, yeah, holy hell, Greg. Like, <laughs> So I guess what I'm really trying to say is if you're not depressed, then you're just crazy because you should be really de- depressed with what's going on. And I actually am saying, I mean, yes, there's things to be depressed about. So being in touch with... These three thought trains that can come up uh, for depressed mood are really helpful. Um, and I'll explain a little bit about how you might manage these as we as we go along here. But these are just things to keep in mind. It's easy to forget when we have the mood arise that we have hopped on a particular train and we're three stops down and we're immersed in the emotion and we don't see the connection between the thinking and the feeling, which is why this was such a big insight uh, for the Buddha. A couple other things the Buddha says about verbal fabrication, how we talk to ourselves. The questions we ask about ourselves and the world, the Buddha says, are the foundation for our actions. In the beginning of the path, we have skillful view, and skillful view invites us to ask this skillful question, which is, What in this moment will lead to my long-term happiness and well-being? In this moment, what can I let go of that will lead to my long-term happiness and well-being? The questions we ask direct and fuel our actions and our emotions. So the Buddha reminds us that as we move through the world, we really want to ask ourselves skillful questions. Questions that will encourage us to show up as kind, generous, and loving beings. Questions that will allow us to look at the future and invite into that future, a sense of ease and grace, right? A sense of compassion, forgiveness, mercy, these types of things. Because the mind, as I said earlier, is looking around to protect itself. It's looking to be safe and secure. It's looking for the negative. So in the Dharma, we try to ask questions that invite personal transformation that leads to skillful actions, to loving kindness. And things of that sort. The Buddha cautioned us to not get too philosophical with our practice. The Buddha often refused to answer philosophical questions because he said these kind of questions just you go down a rabbit hole. Essentially, the Buddha invited us to really pay attention to how we're thinking about the world. The questions we ask limit or invite different kinds of answers. And for example, if I ask you how tall you are, your answer is going to be limited because I've now narrowed the dialogue. If I ask you where you live or where you're from, the answer you're going to give me is fairly limited. And philosophical questions act like that. We want to make sure that the questions we're asking ourselves about our life and what it is for us to be loving and kind are opening ourselves up that are allowing for answers that that lead to happiness, right? That lead to well-being. I can send you out a handout that gives like probably a dozen different skillful questions that the Buddha uh, invited us to consider. But just in general, remember that this path is a path of feeling. It's a path of reflection, but it's not so much a path of philosophical investigation. We want to make sure the questions that we're asking are leading to our happiness and allowing to let go of discontent and suffering moment to moment. So the last thing I'd like to do tonight is give you very specific ways of verbally fabricating inside your meditation practice, how we do this inside practice. And most of you are familiar with every everything I'm about to say, but I just wanted to frame it in the context of everything we just talked about. So again, we're constantly talking to ourselves. We're constantly engaging in self-dialogue, even when the words are not clear, just at the level of energy. Beneath language, the mind continues to chew. It's like a cow, right? It just feeds. It just sits there and chews and chews and chews. And it's always reflecting and analyzing and questioning. So we want to use awareness to be clear on what exactly is happening underneath. So this is how we do it. First thing we have to remember is that insight meditation occurs in the framework of the body. So And when we breathe in and out, we always want to keep awareness on body sensations in some place on the body. can be anywhere. But you always want to keep awareness grounded in the body at some place. Either the entire body as an object, the breath at the belly or the abdomen or the upper lip or any part on the body will do. But keeping awareness grounded in the first foundation is always something we don't want to lose track of. It's not until... And for those of you who have some real maturity and practice and have been doing this a while, know that you don't really abandon awareness of body until you're past the fourth jhana. So, up until then, body awareness is a foundational ground of everything that we've been talking about in insight meditation. So, we want to keep our sensations in awareness. The other thing we want to do with verbal fabrication verbal fabrication in meditation means that we're going to intentionally talk to ourselves. We're going to guide the way the mind thinks in the actual moment of meditation. So while we're holding our body and our feelings in awareness, we might add verbal fabrications to the experience um, to explore in the meditation. And there's three ways that we do this that we're all familiar with. The first one is called labeling or noting. So noting practice is when we bring awareness to the body and we call out either the physical sensations or the moods or emotions as they rise and pass away. Now, part of the reason we do this is to depersonalize and be able to hold the emotions or the sensations in experience. And another reason we do it is that it increases concentration. It helps the mind to really focus in on what's arising. So let us say you're doing a body scan meditation, like in the beginning, and I'm asking you to find sensations on the body. You might bring your hand into awareness and really feel the sensations, and you might try labeling them as they arise. You can say things like prickling, tingling, hot, cold, pressure, Vibrating. Just one word labels, this is verbal fabrication, just one word labels as the experiences arise in the body. So you're feeling them, you don't leave the body with awareness, but you add the verbal fabrication. What this does is while you're labeling, the mind is unable to think its own thought. It's not going to run off and start thinking about other things. So you're kind of controlling the dialogue. Now, The other thing you can do with these labels, some of these more famous labels you're familiar with, when desire arises, you can simply say craving. If there's a feeling of unpleasantness in the heart or mind, you might say aversion. When the mind finds itself in the past, you might just drop the word in past and then bring the mind back to breath. Future, bring the mind back to breath. When we do labels, what we're doing, and I think I mentioned this last week, we're not doing it with a ferocity. What we're doing is we're taking like a pebble and just dropping it into a pond and feeling the consequence of the label. So we don't want to disrupt the presence of awareness in the body. We're trying to enhance the concentration by just labeling things as they arise. Now, this can be done on and off the cushion. Noting practice is really big in different Buddhist traditions where as you're moving through the day, you can label things as they're happening, as you're walking, right? As you're reaching for something, reaching, grabbing, lifting, you can do noting practice while brushing your teeth, right? Grabbing the toothbrush, placing, so you can label the motions as you're doing it. And it will enhance the awareness of the bodily feelings that you have now Again, this is just one way to practice, and it's one way that the Buddha encourages us to explore and experiment. If you're having a really wandering mind kind of session in meditation, it can always be helpful to move into different places in the body and just start labeling some of the feelings. Hot, cold, tension, contraction, expansion. One word, and you just drop them into consciousness ever so gently. I mean, this is just a very light interaction. You're not trying to disturb the force here. You're trying to just engage gently. And after you say your label, you lean into the experience and hold the sensations in equanimity. So you might say, let's say you're feeling really restless. You might say restlessness is arising. And then you feel into the restlessness. And you might say that word five or six times as it's happening. Restlessness and wait and feel, restlessness, wait and feel. So you combine the labels with the body awareness and you wanna make it compatible with the practice. Some of you, at least back, I mean, at least about 10 years ago, some of the earlier meditation teachers or when mindfulness and insight meditation was first kind of becoming popular, oftentimes in introductory meditation books, the first thing that they taught students was labeling how to label things as they arise and pass away. So some of you may be familiar with it and have forgotten about it or have never done it before. And if you haven't, I highly recommend trying it because it can be something that's very enlivening in the moment. If you have some real negative sensations arising, labeling them will give you just a little bit of distance. Like if you're feeling really sad and you really are like getting that stingy sorrow that's coming up and you just don't feel like in that moment, or you've had enough of the sensation, you can then just label it and just say sadness or sadness arising. And every few minutes, just drop that label into the moment. Sadness arising, grief arising, and just feel. And that slight distance that happens with the label can be hugely helpful. That verbal fabrication can be hugely helpful. So that's labeling. The second kind of verbal fabrication we can do is called speaking an in intention. And you you all know what the, you all know what this is, but you may not have heard it in this way. So speaking an in intention is something like, may I be free from suffering? That's a that's a verbal fabrication, right? May I be free from suffering. Now again, in meta meditation, the I think the best way to do this again is to make sure that you you don't lose the framework of the body. So when we're chanting so to speak our intentions may i be free may all beings be at ease what you're doing is you're dropping the intention into consciousness and then you're leaning into the sensations that arise with the ripple of that impact so again just imagine every word being a pebble dropped in a stream and then you watch the rippling and feel into the rippling effect of the label that you're dropping so loving kindness Practice is a verbal fabrication. That's the whole practice is a type of verbal fabrication. Off the cushion, you can do this as well. And I know when I've had those evenings where I've talked about journaling or about conscious reflection, I talk about this one, which is setting intention. So anytime you set intention in the Dharma, we call this a verbal fabrication because we're talking to ourselves. You wake up in the morning and you might take a couple minutes to say, Today, I'm going to show up with grace and ease. Today, I'm going to show up with patience. Today, I'm going to show up in the world with joy. Today, I'm going to show up for my coworkers with, I don't know, zest and enthusiasm and support. I'm going to show up today to my kids with love and kindness or whatever the case may be. So that is a verbal fabrication. We're guiding the mind onto a particular thought train. It's not in the meditation. It's off the cushion. So if you're about to make a rough phone call, okay, I'm going to make this phone call, I'll take a few deep breaths, I'll practice verbal fabrication, I might say, when I'm on this phone call, I'm going to show up with patience, on this phone call, I'm going to show up with a sense of gratitude, on this phone call, I'm going to remember the dukkha of this person. Intentionality is a form of fabrication and we co-create our experiences. So we do this out of habit, but doing it intentionally is a huge part of Dharma practice. We just don't talk about it too much. So speaking intention, loving kindness, obviously the most common of these practices. The last one that I'll talk about is just contemplation practice. Even though Technically, any verbal fabrication practice can be considered a contemplation. Contemplation that we that we really see normally in the Dharma is when you're using like full sentences, when you're really intentionally thinking about something, you're asking a real question. You're not just dropping in just a note or a label or an intention. You're really contemplating actively. Now, again... In the meditation, you still want to maintain awareness on body sensations, no matter what you're doing with the other part of the mind. This will keep mindfulness and equanimity at the forefront. You are all familiar with this practice, which is asking questions about the three characteristics. Is this permanent? Is this suffering? Is this moment self? Are these sensations in my hand self? That's a contemplation, right? Something's happening uh, that you don't, that you're really aversive to, right, on the cushion. Are these painful sensations permanent? But you might actually ask that question to yourself. And that's more of a contemplation. It's still verbal fabrication, but it's a contemplation because it's a little bit more intensive, a little bit more lengthy, so to speak. The other thing to remember about the contemplation part, though, again, we're not necessarily looking for a cognitive answer to any of these. We're looking to feel the insight at the level of body sensations. When we ask ourselves, are these sensations in the hand permanent? Well, we might say, duh, and of course not. That's a stupid question. <laughs> but we're not asking it for that. We're, we're feeling into the impermanent nature of the moment. We're not actually asking for a philosophic and philosophical answer. So remember that contemplation is this self. Is this permanent, is this suffering? Another big one, are these sensations that are arising satisfying? Contemplation practice. So again, all of this fabrication we are doing because the mind does it anyway. The mind is chewing and contemplating and worrying and wondering and thinking about things all the time beneath consciousness. And if we can practice doing it intentionally, we can actually train the mind to think skillfully, to ask questions that lead to increased happiness, that we can label things in a way where we recognize their impermanent nature and we recognize the not-self nature of things. These practices, for some folks, tend to be intimidating because oftentimes, now if you think back to our theme for the last three or four weeks, the theme for the last few weeks has been the difference between mindfulness meditation and insight meditation. So if you've been raised up with mindfulness meditation, more than likely you've been discouraged from doing any intentional thinking. But in insight meditation, we learn to fabricate. We change the experience in the service of wisdom, in the service of insight. So we engage more actively. So just to bring this to a close, um, I would encourage you to practice labeling. Practice noting, especially when the mind is really wandering or you're experiencing really strong emotions. I would encourage you to take note of the way your mind thinks habitually in different situations. When you're feeling pissed off or angry, what kind of thoughts do you think in those moments? When you're feeling depressed, what are the thought trains that are more likely to happen in those moments? Can you really notice them and bring them into awareness, right? When you're feeling anxious and worried, can you actually catch your mind catastrophizing and and watching it say like, oh my gosh, this is going to go off the rails no matter what I do. Can you catch it in the act as it's happening? And just by intending to catch the mind in the act with this type of thinking, you will get better at it just simply by desiring to do so. So by catching yourself in the act, planning and preparing uh, and practicing, labeling things, uh, don't forget, and again, uh, I feel like I do a disservice by not incorporating a lot of this into our daily meditations or weekly meditations here. And I, I will try to do more of this as we go. But remember that as you're doing body scanning practice or breath practice, every so often, just ask yourself, is this self? Is this permanent? And just drop some fabrication in every so often throughout the meditation. That's a perfectly good practice to do, to remind the mind to look for the impermanence. And if you do that regularly, what you will start to find is the mind begins to attune to the impermanence and will notice it before you even intend to look for it. It will just start recognizing it throughout your day. It'll it'll look and say, oh, wow, impermanent oh, this isn't self, I shouldn't be so attached. Oh, wow, this isn't really as satisfying as I feel like it should be. The mind will give you the insight after you ask the question enough times, after you intend, it will start giving you the insight without you having to fabricate it all. It'll just become a habit. So that's verbal fabrication. That's the way we engage actively in thinking. If you want, I do have... um, Maybe I'll actually I know where it is. I will um, just send out a link um, that has a list of like the fifteen or twenty skillful questions that the I like the list. I printed it up a while back, and so I have it handy. I'll um, I'll send a link out that has a list for you to look at, just so you guys can remember the skillful questions that the Buddha talks about, um, things to contemplate in your in your meditation. Hmm, I like this topic. I like this topic cause my mind is always on overdrive and I have to catch it thinking otherwise I am a wreck. <laughs> I can't let my mind go on its own. It's just dangerous for me to do that. I always have to be watching it closely. Otherwise, before I know it, I'm worrying or catastrophizing or overachieving in some way or, or another. So keep an eye on your mind is the take home tonight. Let's conclude with some meta. Thank you, my friends for showing up supporting us in practice. Next week we will continue with more of these uh, practices. Next week what we'll do is we'll take some of these that we did tonight and we will, again, spend an evening uh, mostly in practice just doing these, guiding us through the labeling, the noting, the reflecting. So next week is going to be a heavy practice day, just so you know, and we'll take all the stuff we talked about tonight and we will all do some guided meditations around verbal fabrication. In the meantime, practice, if you have questions, give me a shout-out through email. Let's plop back into body and do the verbal fabrication known as loving kindness. Let's just take a long, slow, deep breath. And on the exhale relax deeply and fully into body really feeling that sitting body notice all the sensations after the last 90 minutes or so really notice where in the body you can be awake and aware to any of the prickling tingling Hot and cold, pressure, expansion, contraction. Just notice where the body calls out to the mind. Where do you notice your embodied being in this moment? And with awareness gently grounded in the body itself we might include some verbalizations dropping them into consciousness gently like pebbles in a pond and then feeling awake and aware to the actual sensation of thinking these thoughts. May I be free from suffering. May I be free from suffering. May I know true joy and true happiness in this lifetime. May I be free from danger, worry, and concern. May I know grace and ease, moment to moment, with a heart filled with delight and compassion. May all beings be free. May all beings know true love true joy and true happiness in this life. And to conclude our sit, while maintaining full body awareness, fully awake and aware to this breathing body. Let us make a final wish for all beings. In this moment, if you could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would it be? Offer that wish into awareness. Thank you my friends for joining us in sangha oh, on a closing note i know most of you are on the mailing list for wednesday wake up uh, but i know new people come and go all the time from the group so if you are not on the list for wednesday wake up please go to the website at wednesdaywakeup.com all one word and get on the mailing list um all i ever send out on that list is handouts from the weekly stuff announcements for retreat Um, and on occasion I do a little reflection or some guidance like on Friday sometime I'll write a little reflection on practice uh, just to keep you guys motivated but um, there won't be any spam but you'll get you'll get the stuff from the group and I know a lot of people are already on the list but then I know some people who didn't know we had one so go to Wednesday wake up get on our list Um, be safe be well and next week we will practice some more thanks my friends enjoy be safe
0: Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up! We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge, so this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website www.wednesdaywakeup.com and click on donate at the menu on the top while you're here at the website join our mailing list and follow gregory on instagram at gregory maloof dharma thank you again for listening may all beings be happy